Welcome everyone, this is Sasha, Sasha Talks on Moving Mountains. Today's guest is a creator in every way, a writer, an artist, and a designer. Hosting a immense portfolio of work comprising non-fiction and fiction unfolding through a broad array of genres, author Casey Bell joins us to shed light on the evolving landscape for writers worldwide. He shares his experiences while dispensing a few professional tips that other talents can benefit from whether they are novice or professional. Whether it's a comedy, tragedy, or light-hearted melancholy, Casey knows how to translate the influx of human emotions on paper, audio, and video. Join me in welcoming Casey Bell. Welcome to Moving Mountains, Casey. Thank you for the invitation. Casey, you happen to be a celebrated writer, a playwright, songwriter, artist, out of all of the roles that you represent, which one is close to your heart? And how did it all begin? I would say songwriter, because that was the first thing I started doing since I was a child. Um, I would say it was just in me to do it. I never really thought about it. The uh, first song I ever wrote, I was like seven or eight years old. My brother was playing a video game, and I just started singing to the music that was behind it. And the first thing I ever wanted to be was a singer. And so music, and both my parents were in bands when they were growing up. So music is instilled in me. So I would say songwriter would be the one that's the closest to my heart. Are there any artists that you listen to? And do you have a favorite song of your own? I can't say I have a favorite song, but um, I would say the top five artists I listen to a lot um, and who have... Um, taught me the most as far as my singing skills would be the Clark sisters and then Richard Smallwood singers, Ella Fitzgerald, Shaka Khan, and then the Pointer sisters. Um, They taught me the most about harmony and melody and about learning when to sing lead, learning when to sing backup, you know, so things like that. But I can't say I have one song that's my favorite. I'm sure many people have a few that resonate with them at different times of the day or moments of their life. Because you also are a playwright, are there any historical plays or characters that you would love to be a part of or would like to act? Yes. Um, I actually, before I called in, was listening to the um, Broadway musical soundtrack, Ain't Misbehaving. I would love to be in that role. Um, it's it's a very fun play. It, it honors and celebrates um Thomas Fats Waller, who was a jazz and blues um, songwriter and artist. And that is definitely a play I would like to be in. And also, I would love to play the voice of Audrey Two from Little Shop of Horrors. Because you made an earlier appearance in Creative Circle and you broke down how you write fiction and nonfiction, I recall in one of your responses you mentioned that you 30% of your work is exaggerated nonfiction. Could you please explain what exaggerated nonfiction would be? 
Um, well, it's um, a lot of my books are based on either people or situations I've been involved in, but I um, make it fictional and I exaggerate some of what happened because sometimes in life we don't really learn from, um, how do I say, truth. Sometimes we need to see, like in television, an exaggeration of truth in order for us to realize we need to change. And so I exaggerate the truth, not only um, to help people um, see what they need to change, but also in every case of my books, I never had the permission from the people I used. So I didn't, you know, want any lawsuits or anything like that happening. So I make sure I exaggerate the truth so that the people who I do use don't know I'm using them. That's a very valid point. It does make sense because you have penned at least 32 pieces of art representing different genres of writing. What have you learned about the world of self-publication? The main thing that I learned was it's important to understand um, PR, advertising and marketing, the difference between the three and how important the three are. Um, no matter how great your writing is, no matter how great your story is, and no matter how many contacts you have, you can't sell books without those three, PR, um, public relations, advertising, and marketing, in that it's, it's, for me, some of it is fun, most of it is not, but you have to learn to do what's not fun in order to um, continue to do what, you, what is fun. I appreciate you differentiating between marketing, advertising, and PR because for some reason even to this day there are people who use the terms interchangeably and they don't understand that one drives the other but they're not in the same lane. With all of the conveniences available, do you believe that the aid of technology, the life of a writer has become easier or has it become more challenging because now there's more upkeep with how you communicate your work? I was, well, it depends on how well you enjoy learning. You know, anything that's new is, um, can be frustrating learning how to do. But I would say it makes it easier because there are a lot more options on, um, I mean, the original way of publishing a book was sending, first finding a literary agent, which is not easy, and then paying them thousands of dollars to help you uh, to push your information to a publishing company. And it doesn't matter, like I said, how great you are. And this literary agent can be a literary agent to Oprah Winfrey and the Obamas, but that doesn't mean they can get you a book deal overnight. Sometimes it takes six months, a year, a year and a half, two years for that literary agent to get your book in front of someone who's going to say yes. Now you don't have to do that. And yes, it's still a lot more work because you have to do the bulk of the work, but it makes it easier because you also get to have 100% control of your work um, once you sign up a contract, um, once they tell you what they don't like about your book, once you sign that contract, no matter how much you disagree with them, there is no, you know, negotiating. If they say you need to remove this character or this character needs to be male instead of female or this person needs to blah, 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 then you have to change that character. So self-publishing and technology today has made it a lot more easier, I would say, and better for writers to have more control, not only over the stories they tell, but over the money they make. Have you conceptualized any ideas and you didn't act upon writing the actual book or the piece because you felt that genre was oversaturated and there's a very heavy theme in the market that you talked yourself out of it? 
Never actually. Um, no, you know, it's, it's never over. I mean, there are probably a thousand books being published a day, but there are billions of people all over the world. And so there is an audience for you. Everyone is not going to get to your book. Not everyone who reads it is going to like it, but there is an audience for your book and you shouldn't be concerned on, is it oversaturated? You're, Concern should be what is my message, what is my point, what am I trying to tell the reader, what do I want the reader to get out of it. That should be your only focus, not is it oversaturated, because if you didn't do anything because something was oversaturated, you'd be sitting around doing absolutely nothing, because there's always choices in every, in every genre, in every medium. And there are people who will um, follow you, find out about you, and um, purchase your things, so I never, no, I never had that thought that it's just too many books out there in this genre, so I can't write in that. Your work seems to entertain and educate audiences from those that are young to the Susan adults. And one of the themes that you seem to celebrate is finding your identity and that you want people to be unique as their fingerprints. What makes you unique in your perception? I would say very early on, I... The one thing that made me unique was I was proud to be me. Um, by the time I got into high school, I learned, I, I mean, they talk about don't follow bandwagons, but unfortunately many people live their whole life following bandwagons. And by the time I got into high school, I finally learned that I don't have to dress a certain way. I don't have to have certain type of friends. I can truly be me. And I would say the most unique thing about me, um, I, to be honest, I can't, I don't know. But I do know that I don't lessen myself for people. I don't change myself for people. And I make sure I, especially for my nephews and nieces, I never try to be who I'm not because I'm around certain type of people or I see everybody else doing something, so I'm going to do it too. Or I hear everybody else saying something, I'm going to say it too. I make sure in everything I do it is – it is okay for me. It's okay for what I was created to do. It's kind of like even if, you know, the, the eagle is flying and the, the, the um, robin is flying and the cardinal is flying, it doesn't mean the penguin has to start flying. They have, they're going to swim because that's what is okay for them. And so that's what I focus on is not what I see everybody else doing, saying, wearing, writing, but – being okay with me just as I am. I would say as a writer, what makes me unique, um, and I'm not saying I'm the only human writer, the only human being or the only writer in the whole world that does this, but one of the things I notice about writers is they care more about the words they're writing, the, the word count, than they care about the story. I see it all the time on Twitter. Oh, I just wrote, you know, 10,000 words, or my goal today is this amount of words. And I'm like, that's not important because the only thing you should be caring about is why am I writing this book in the first place? Is there a message behind it? And your only focus should be how am I going to tell this message so that people understand it? And so I would say I'm unique as a writer because I never care how many words I write. I never count. I never pay attention to that. I never pay attention to the page numbers. I only pay attention to why am I writing this book, what is the purpose of it, and what message am I trying to send, and that's it. Tying back to the identity, you also happen to offer seminars which are appropriate for young children and parents, and one of them is called 
quick fitting, would you like to share a little bit what inspired you to extend that message to audiences? Yes, so quick fitting started, I can't even tell you how many years ago it was because it really was a long time ago. I, um, at my church, they, um, I was trying to find a way to teach children, you know, how to preach to children in a way that they can comprehend it and a fun way of doing it. And so not just with quick fitting, but many of my teaching, my skills is we start off with a game where basically all you need is your common knowledge to play these games. But I set the games up on purpose to trick you. Um, so quick fitting basically started with games where, for instance, the first game we played was um, – where I had paper, I ripped up paper, and I put it on the floor, and there was two contestants, and they had to use a pencil to pick up the paper and put the paper into a bowl. And, of course, they had a hard time doing it because the pencil wouldn't pick up the paper. And the purpose of that was to say pencils were not created for the purpose of picking up paper. It was created for writing. So when you try to use things um, opposite of their creation, you're going to have a problem. And so quick bidding is saying the reason why we have such a hard time, you know, especially in school trying to fit in is because we're trying to do things that's opposite of us, that's not for us. And if we don't think there's – if we think there's something wrong with trying to use a pencil to clean a floor instead of a vacuum cleaner, then we should realize it's nothing wrong with me choosing not to do what I see if I want to see everyone else is doing if I realize that's just not who I am. So quit fitting um, is fun. There are three games in there that I do to um, first to get them, you know, mobilizing and paying attention. And then at the end, I show them what each game means and why it's important to quit fitting and to stop trying to fit in and stop trying to follow bandwagons and stop trying to say, I just want people to accept me. You don't need people to accept you. If you accept who you are, that's all that matters. And so that is one of the seminars that I can't offer at the moment due to the pandemic, but I do offer that for um, um, use. That's a very wise way of transferring such knowledge. Also, you have Healing You and Spare the Rod. Uh, given the nature of their message, what role does spirituality and or faith play in your life? Um, it, it's a lot. I would definitely say a lot. Um, I, I know, well, for me, I know that if no matter how healthy your, your physical body is, if your spirit, your soul is not healthy, you won't be healthy. And lots of times you can actually get sick or die from not having a healthy spirit. And I make sure for myself that my spirit is healthy and I, make sure I meditate. I make sure that I have a heart of gratitude. I remember a while ago, I was driving for a long period of time. And when I got out of the car, my legs were hurting so much, I was complaining. And I finally just stopped and said, I need to stop complaining. And I just said, Holy Spirit, every single time I have a complaint, give me something to be thankful about. And so now instead of complaining, which is great for the spirit, I am not complaining, but Thanksgiving is great for the spirit. I make sure no matter what is what I consider bad going on, I be thankful. So when I hear the neighbor's dog just going off and it won't shut up, 
instead of screaming and hollering, I say, well, at least I can hear it because there are many people who are deaf and cannot hear dogs or anything at all. So at least I have hearing. I can hear the dog. I'm thankful that I can hear. And so that is one of the things I do is no, doesn't matter how bad it is. Oh, it's raining outside. Oh, it's ugly. Well, at least I can see the rain because there are people who can't see it. I can hear the rain. I can go out and I can feel it. There's many people who can't walk out and feel it. And if you are paralyzed, you can't feel anything. So at least I can feel here and, and I can smell the rain as well. And so I find ways to be thankful for things instead of complaining about them. And that is one way I lift my spirit and make sure it's, it's healthy. You also have Pan, the American History series, which I find to be wonderful because I believe it's a series of several books that celebrate inventors and well-known people from different parts of the world. How long did it take you from the point of conceptualization to launching all of the books in the market? I would say, um, well, the first book took me about four days to do, produce, and it was never originally a series. It was, I wanted my nephews and nieces to see more than segregation and slavery because black people contributed more to America than just slavery. And, well, we didn't actually contribute that at all. That's what happened to us. So I wanted them to see something more. And that was the only book I had intentions of, um, the African-American one that I had intentions of producing and publishing but I felt the need to keep going. So once I decided to keep going, I'll say maybe um, a month or two to complete it because I made sure that I only spent three to four days on each book. I was very um, disciplined and very hard on myself. Um, and I made sure the book, each book, I, I, like the first day was on um, researching everything the second book was on illustration. The second day was on illustration. The third day was finding ways to turn that research into um, a story that children can comprehend. And then the fourth day was producing the actual book, um, putting the illustrations together and everything of that sort. And so I would say maybe a month or two, really, to do the whole thing. And originally, it was not supposed to be released all at once, but unfortunately, some the first publishing company that I went with, some they changed their whole platform on their website and unfortunately had two books released, and I had the rest of the books on the way but on, like, hold. And when they changed their whole website, I lost all my work, and I was just frustrated because it took a lot of work to do that. So when I changed publishers, Instead of waiting again, I decided just to publish all of it because I didn't want anything else happening to where I would lose work again. So it is a nine-book series, and the purpose is to share um, American history that's been overlooked, that's been ignored, that no one really knows, no one knows about. And I wanted every child to see themselves in one of those books. Out of all of the work that you have created, written solely, which piece of work is holds true to your heart and why? Out of all of my books, right? Yes. The, the answer to this one, will, I think, will always be the same. And it's not that it's my favorite. It's just the, because of the format that it's in. So my book, um, Essays from Dysfunctional Families, Literary Betrayal, is because it's, it's technically two books in one. 
and I'm, I, I could be wrong, but I think I'm the only person to ever do this, the only author to ever do this. So originally the book was supposed to be called Literary Betrayal, which I started writing. And it was about an author who was struggling and um, financially. And so he finally decides to write a book called Essays from Dysfunctional Families, and he used his family and his friends' secrets to write this book. And he changed his names and everything, but he still, he didn't change much to the fact that his family knew that he was talking about them. So he presents it to, you know, literary agent. He gets it published in another country, and he becomes a best-selling, very well-known author. When he, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, when he comes to, to back to his country, back to his home, because his publisher is like, well, you were born in such and such. We should go back, you know, to your home and do a grand blah, blah, blah. And he's afraid because he's not sure of how his family and friends took him taking their information without his, their knowledge. So he goes back home to visit and realizes that basically no one has really, no one is okay with it, and they're having a hard time forgiving him. So when I was writing this book, Literary Betrayal, in my personal opinion, it was born because you, you saw, you heard what the family was saying, but you didn't know why they were upset because you didn't actually get a chance to read his book that he wrote. So that's when I got the idea that before you get to Literary Betrayal, you get to read his book. So the first book, Essays of Dysfunctional Families, is a fictional book written by a fictional author. And then the second half of the book, Literary Betrayal, is the story is his family and friends' reaction to this fictional author's bestseller. And that is the one closest to my heart because it's, like I said, kind of two books in one. No one's ever done this type of thing before, and I, I just think it's amazing. Within the realm of writing and just professional ethics, something that I'm in the process of learning more about through other writers, are there any topics that you would not entertain in your work? Um. I probably wouldn't do romance. Um, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. I just personally don't care to write in that format as far as romance. That's probably one thing. And I'm not going to say never because 10 years, 20 years from now, I might have an interest of doing that. But right now I don't see myself ever doing romance. You also have the funny chops because I was listening and watching The Customer is Usually Wrong. And when I looked at that video, I, I had a good laugh because from life experiences, I don't believe that the customer is always right. Uh, what inspired you to come up with that sample piece of work, and was that lured by your professional experiences? Well, that's what inspired it. I spent 17 years in customer service. Um, I worked, I can't even tell you how many jobs because I kept moving from job to job. But every job I had was basically the same, not all but most of the customers were either rude or they were just wrong, um, and then they would get upset with you when they made mistakes. Um, sometimes they weren't very, um, how do I say, they didn't use common sense all the time, so it was sometimes frustrating working. And I can't remember the year, but I just remember at some point every time I went to work, something happened that made me think of doing a TV show. And I was like, I, I got to write, I got to do something because it's just, the experiences I'm having, some of it is just too funny not to share. And then some of it, um, I was like, I think I need to share this so people can see themselves because not all customers really see themselves. 
Um, so I thought if I can put together some type of show where they can see themselves, maybe that will cause them to, to change their ways. And so originally it was supposed to be kind of like um, The Office or Third, um, Third Rock, like a comedy reality show. But as of now, because of the pandemic, I really don't have the, the resources, you know, to hire, you know, a whole health team to do testing and all that and hiring a whole staff. So I decided just to do it myself, and so it is so far a four-part um, season series. Um, season one and two are already uploaded and scheduled, and I'm working on three and four. Um, it comes on every Monday. Um, well, it, it, it airs every Monday, 12 15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on YouTube, and it's just me sharing my experience in customer service in um, just – and it's called the customer is usually wrong because generally they are, but they because of the statement <laughs> the customer is always right, they're in some ways arrogant and they come in. And one of the main things people don't understand is that when it's one thing when you're in a small business, but when you're in a franchise, no one in there has the the authority to make any changes to anything. Every franchise has a CEO, and the CEO is the only one who can make changes to anything. And lots of times they come in screaming and hollering and upset, but it's like no, no manager, no general manager, no, no, nobody in there has the authority to make any changes to any policy in that place. And customers don't get that, that concept. And they're like, let me see a manager. And then the manager is telling them, I can't do anything. Well, aren't you a manager? Like, yes, but the manager is not the CEO. And so I wanted to put something together to kind of show people this is how you are. And, you know, when you go into a business, the only thing they owe you is what you pay for, and that is it. And you should never go in there with the entitlement spirit and the rude spirit and, you know, I'm owed this because at the end of the day you're not. So that was my – it's been brewing in my brain, I'm going to say probably since 20, 2008, 2009, to do something like this because it's – I never realized – and it's – I would say the good thing about it is it's also changed me as a customer because I make sure when I go anywhere, I'm kind to everyone, and when I get a no, I let it go. Because just as long as I understand, you know, no one in that franchise can make changes to the policies. And so that is, you know, customers usually wrong. And it was, it was a lot of work, but fun to, fun to produce. You bring up a good point that rudeness does not resolve anything. For customers out there, because all of us are customers in some capacity, what friendly guidance do you have for them, regardless of the time of the year when they're going out shopping, whether they're picking up their coffee or going to exchange their pair of shoes? Well, the main thing I say is not just us being a customer in life, period. When you go somewhere, remember your purpose. You know, lots of times people say, oh, I went to the store and the clerk was rude to me. She didn't say hi. She didn't greet me, blah, 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 blah. And I say, yes, it's nice if they do that, but that's not why you went there. You didn't, you didn't go to the store to get greeted. You didn't go for them to say hello to you. You went because you had a need or a want, and you're going there to get it. So remember your purpose. If you're going there to get something, go get it and leave. And if they don't say hi to you, you say hi to them. You know, you be kind. You smile. You know, sometimes um, these clerks get yelled at for no reason, and not everyone can just, you know, shove that off and have, you know, be nice. That 
can wreck someone's day for the rest of the day. So don't be so arrogant and judge them. Oh, they weren't like you don't know what they went through. Not only that, you don't know if they are trying to, you know, get the day off because someone died and they want to go to the funeral and the boss told them no. So now maybe they can be angry for that reason, and it's not has nothing to do with you. And so don't go there with any expectations except what is my purpose. So if I'm going to get milk. I need to go and get milk, pay for it, and leave, and I don't need anything else. I don't. No one owes me anything, um, n- none of that. So go with the purpose, and, and that, like I said, that's with every location. You're going to school, well, they won't be friends with me. You're not going to school for friends and social. You're going there for education. So go get your education and then leave. You know, what, wherever, you're, wherever you're going, figure out your purpose and let that be the only reason why you're there. But specifically with customers, remember that if you didn't pay for it, no one owes it to you, period. If you didn't pay for them to smile at you, then that's not – you're not paying for that. You're paying for the, the product or the service. And so always remember you're not owed anything. Get rid of that entitlement spirit. And always remember when the manager says no, they can't – unless you want them fired, they can't make changes because the CEO makes the final choices of the policy and also remember that every policy is in place for a specific reason. CEOs don't have time to make policies because they have nothing else to do with their time and they're just making policies. There's a purpose to every policy. So don't, you may not, it may not be beneficial to you, but that doesn't mean you get to scream, holler, and yell and force them to try to change a policy. No one in any business that's not the CEO can change policies for you, period. They can maybe give you something complimentary. They can give you a coupon. They can give you a discount. But they they cannot change policies. And so never go in with the entitlement of this is what you owe me. Every business tells you this is what we do for you, and that's all you need to expect from them, nothing more. This is definitely a great public service announcement because people need this reminder, especially in the world of living in, I would say, a fast food convenience society. There are many people who are entitled. Now transitioning off to a lighter topic, you also happen to create art through drawings, paintings, and I noticed some of the beautiful pieces that are available on Curious. How long does it take for you to come up with one piece of work? Like, for example, I'm looking at abstract leaves. It's very beautiful, and you, it seems you have your own community where people are leaving you very well-deserved reviews. Uh, is that from photography? What genre of art would you call it? Um, it depends a lot. Some of my art, uh, most of my art is in some way graphic design. I'll either take a drawing or I'll take um, a picture that I've taken and I will turn it into something else using a software, a a photo editing software. Um, So, I mean, I am in the genre of um, drawing, photography, and graphic design and sometimes painting. Sometimes I paint. It's rare that I do that. Um... But, yeah, it's it's probably photography and a mixture of photography and photo editing. Are there any pieces that you're working on at the moment? Mm, actually, um, the only thing right now I'm working on is my um, YouTube channel, CSB Television. Um, one of the shows on there is uh, Customers Usually Wrong, but most of it, that's the only, like, funny comedy show. The rest of the shows on there... Um, that I'm 
consistently working on are interview shows with, um, I don't want to call it a podcast because it's video, so I guess you can call it a podcast. But it's, um, I talk with authors, um, writers, you know, um, playwrights, songwriters. I talk with musicians, artists, um, um, visual artists, fine artists. I talk with actors, dancers, um, entrepreneurs. It's different type of shows. I believe I have seven different um, talk shows, I guess you can call them, interview shows, where I just talk with people and um, help promote whatever they're doing in that moment. So that's basically. Were, I was going to say some of that is referenced on your Patreon page, right? So people could go and support you there for exclusive access. Yes. Um, my Patreon, a lot of the stuff you can see for free, um, but there are some, um, like maybe some poetry from my poem book I'll add that only those who pay can um, see, and um, sometimes some other content that I make it, um, I only share with those who are on my Patreon. And as we wrap things up, is there any latest piece of work that will be unfolding within the next several weeks to few months that we all should keep an eye out on? And how can audiences connect with you, Casey? The first question, um, believe it or not, is not something I can answer. Um, it's weird because in my, in my past, I've always was working on a project. But right now, I've been keeping all my focus on my um, YouTube channel, CSB Television. Um, so that you can look forward to. I have content uploaded up until, um, well, scheduled up until 2022. So that is, you know, that's a, a promise. From, 20, from now to 2022, there will be content um, flowing um, constantly on my YouTube channel that you can watch and enjoy. And, of course, you can go back and watch the stuff that's already on there. As far as getting in contact with me, the best way to do that, um, everything you just mentioned, um, can easily be found on my main website, kcsamuelbell.com. That leads to my books, my art, um, my uh, CSB television, my um, the uh, fashion designing um, website. I have so much stuff I'm always working on. So everything you, um, we talked about can be found on CaseySamuelBell.com as, as well as my um, social media. Um, my social media tags, you can um, find me on there as well. I highly recommend everyone to drop by AuthorCaseSamuelBell.com because it will keep you entertained for at least a few to several hours, and it all branches out to different websites, different genres of work, and more details where Casey is also a contributor on various subject matter topics. So you're welcome to check out his articles as well. Casey, I wanted to thank you for sharing a glimpse of your fun artistic life today, and we look forward to keeping an eye on your next endeavors that come out. Thank you. Thank you, and you're welcome.